God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior. At the right time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let us give thanks to our mighty God and worship him this day. Let us pray. Lord God, almighty King of glory and love eternal, you are worthy at all times to receive our adoration, praise, and blessing. And this we bring to you this day in the name of Jesus Christ. We praise you now for sending your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, for whom we wait, but who has come. And so we come to you with that great joy of our Savior in both his advents. We pray you would be pleased to come and be present with us now by your Holy Spirit, so that along with you, O Father, and the Son, we may praise you and exalt you as the one to whom all right and, and honor and blessing should be given. In his name we pray. Amen. Our first hymn is number 208, O Come All Ye Faithful. <clears throat>
Hear the words of the angel who spoke to Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Therefore, let us seek the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Let us pray together. Almighty God, our Maker and Redeemer, once we were far off from you, having no hope and cut off from you in the world. But now Jesus Christ has brought us near to you, reconciling us to you, the eternal word who became flesh. We poor sinners confess that we have been sinful and unclean and that we have sinned against you by thought, word, and deed. Therefore, we flee for refuge to your boundless mercy, seeking and imploring your grace for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. O most merciful God, Since you have given your only begotten Son to die for us, have mercy on us, and for his sake grant us forgiveness of all our sins, and by your Holy Spirit increase in us true knowledge of you and of your will and true obedience to your word, to the end that by your grace we may come to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. The Gospel of John declares, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The good news of the Gospel is that Jesus Christ indeed has come, has taken on our humanity, bore our sins, died on the cross, and been raised for us to justify us and make us right with God. So all those who have faith in him and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of their sin. Let us praise God and say together, praise be to God. Beloved children of God, once you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is a shame even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it is said, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 488, Remember Not, O God. Plaintive sigh, and in the greatness. 
Please be seated. And let us pray now, remembering all those who are in need. Remember the prisoners in jail and all that we know who need our prayers. You join yours with the prayer that is prayed here. And together we lift these concerns up to our Lord. Let us pray. Glorious and eternal God, whose mercy to your church is unending, never forgetting your grace and promise of salvation to us, you who are most patient and forbearing, compassionate, our loving Father, a refuge never failing, we, we rejoice because you have claimed each one of us in Jesus Christ, and we are your beloved children. And we rejoice because you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world, born of the Virgin Mary, and made man. He came to join us in our sinful condition in order to reconcile us to you, and so we give you thanks for all of that, Lord. And now with Jesus Christ as our Savior, and as Scripture says, our elder brother, and as we are members of your holy family, we pray by your Spirit with fervent hearts for those in affliction and need. We do pray for higher realities of honesty and justice and moral uprightness and truth to be known and pursued in our nation. We pray that you would lift people's heads up away from themselves and thinking that we can just create our own realities here. Through Jesus Christ, you have revealed the justice and righteousness of your kingdom. And so we pray that you would grant to us leaders who have a respect for virtue and the higher rule of law, business leaders who generously create jobs and benevolently give to those in need, and members of society who value work and wish to contribute to society. Here are our prayers for those who rule over us and for the citizens of this nation. In our consumer-oriented economy, our love is so often distracted, O God. So we pray you would direct our hearts with the words of Christ our Savior who said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And while some would spend their money on extravagant purchases for themselves, may we give more and more to those in need. And while some would store up their wealth for security, may we use ours according to the wisdom of your word and the freedom of trusting in your provision for us. Here are prayers for a right use of wealth in our economy and in our households. For nations and regions of this world that are filled with violence, we ask you to create new governments that respect the dignity of people while opposing those who destroy and stir up strife. Hear us now as we pray for the people of Iran, Syria, Nigeria, Afghanistan, North Korea, Egypt, Central America, the various countries in Central America, and Turkey, and in our own cities. Hear our prayers. Father, most merciful, it is easy these days to make foolish decisions to be lost in our sin, to cling to our distractions rather than turning to you in admission of our sin, and with thanksgiving for reconciling us to yourself in Jesus Christ. With hearts that are pricked by your spirit, we pray for those who live in the darkness of their sin, including those at the Oakland County Jail. We pray for Merrick, Angel, Calvin, James, Christian, and Demetrius. We ask that you would give them a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Hear our prayers, O Lord, for those in prison. 
Wonderful is the good news of the advent of Christ your Son, through whom you love us and give us new life. Help us in our weakness, weaknesses and affliction. Especially we call out to you on behalf of those who are sick and need help or are unable to get out of their houses very often. We pray for Frida, for Eduardo, for Jeff and Linda, for Bob and Fawn. We pray for Leah. We also pray for our friends Becky and Angie, Karen, Bob, Tom, Phil, Dominic, Mrs. Mesner, and others we name to you and add to these prayers. Strengthen them with good health. Enlighten the doctors who enlighten the doctors who attend to them, so that they may properly determine what ails them and what they need. And we pray that they would be encouraged by means of the church's ministry. As you have created us to be industrious and stewards of your creation, bless each one of us with skills to use and work to do in service to you and for the improvement of other people's lives. Here are prayers for those with whom we work. With your word, teach us the ways of your kingdom so that we might learn what justice is and promote it in our society, that we might learn what peace is and advance it, and that we might know what righteousness is and so live accordingly. Blessed Father, we thank you for building up Providence Presbyterian Church. Continue to make us one family in Christ and add to us many more people as we, as we receive the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these prayers we offer to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
We pray now in preparation for hearing God's word read and preached. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for how you have brought us out of darkness into your wonderful light, that light of Christ that we celebrate each Lord's Day, but especially during this season of Advent. We pray that by his light, our Lord would illumine our hearts and lead us on the path of faith, hope, and love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We begin our reading in the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. We turn next to our Psalter response in the bulletin. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies last back among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let the tribulation shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man 
whom you have made strong for yourself. And then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Our next reading is from the letter to the Romans, chapter 1, first, the first seven verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Gospel reading is in the first chapter of Matthew, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The word of the Lord. Last Tuesday, the president signed the so-called Respect for Marriage Act. Our news outlet said the signing was a victory for the LGBTQ plus community as it further protects the right to marriage for same-sex couples. There was jubilation. There was laughter. Entertainers performed and sang songs. The White House was glowing in rainbow colors. There were all kinds of people there, Republicans and Democrats, and even some religious leaders. This was the official line. Marriage is a simple proposition. Who do you love, and will you be loyal to that person you love? And it's not more complicated than that. Everyone kept saying, you should be able to love who you want to love. The act also repealed the Defense of Marriage Act, which was signed into law when, president Clinton was, when Bill Clinton was president in 1996. And that stated marriage was a union between a man and a woman. The ordinance of marriage as upheld in the Christian church 
and long the common understanding of marriage in American society was rejected. While they rejoiced, those advocating for this new law said it was a good start, but it did not go far enough. And here we are today, God's people who follow Jesus Christ in the midst of Advent, listening to the readings, including Psalm 80, anticipating the celebration of Christmas. Israel was bewildered, and Psalm 80 expresses that bewilderment. The psalm calls out to God, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, who you who lead Joseph like a flock. And it addresses God as the one who has guided Israel and who ruled over Israel, God as the shepherd king of Israel. With plaintive pleas in the psalm, it cries, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry? And it says, why, it cries out, why then have you broken down the walls of your vineyard so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? And then there's the refrain of the psalm that keeps breaking out. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Psalm 80 is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of bewilderment. The psalm begins with an image of God's past action toward Israel, and it pictures God on the throne. It's a throne supported by cherubim, which were winged creatures. They're described a little bit in Scripture, winged creatures with faces. And on that throne, God flashes in dazzling glory when his people are threatened. This image is tied to the Ark of the Covenant and its place in Israel's history. So for those who first heard this or used this psalm, they would have been uh, seen connections with the Ark and God's work with Israel with the Ark. The names and titles used in the first verse of the psalm relate to the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubs represented the base of God's invisible throne. God's throne was in the heavens, and it set, but it, and it set over the whole earth, but it touched the earth where the ark was. The place where God's royal presence was manifested on earth was the ark. God said to Israel, There I will meet you, meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. In Israel, the Lord was present where the ark was. When the, with the ark of God, he led the Israel through the wilderness like a flock. And when, wherever the ark moved, the people moved with it. The book of Numbers tells us that the people set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And as they traveled through the wilderness towards the promised land, that ark was always leading them, and, and the Lord was present bringing them forward. With the ark, God confronted Israel's enemies. Numbers also says, and whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Shepherd, that's used in this first verse of the psalm, shepherd is a title that picks up God's presence with the ark. It's a title for God as king who leads and protects and provides for his people. And that's exactly what shepherd means in Psalm 23. You all know Psalm 23. It's a very common psalm. And so it has these lines in it, and think of God leading, protecting, and providing for his people. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness. I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
And then has the line, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. There's the Lord as the shepherd who leads, protects, and provides for his people. And that's the image. That's the understanding of shepherd that's coming out in our psalm in in verse 1. God was the shepherd king who ruled over his people and protected them as he led them with the ark from Egypt and established them in the land. Psalm 80 recalls the history of God establishing his people in the land. And that's what verses 8 through 11 are talking about in the psalm. He uses there the image of a vine. Psalms are poetry, Hebrew poetry, built with this parallelism in it, in the lines. And it is rich and full of metaphors, and many different metaphors can be in one psalm, and we have that in this psalm. So this is the metaphor in verses 8 through 11. Those verses are talking about the image of a vine. And here's how one commentator, since most of us don't have vines, and if you do have vines in your yard and you're like me, you're trying to cut them out and tear them out and rip them and destroy them, especially when it's poison ivy. Here's how one commentator describes the use of that image for Israel, the vine, which had the idea of vineyard, right, grapes. Vines and vineyards were a basic and familiar possession that were owned, cared for, and prized as a primary good of life. It was just considered one of those good staples of life back in those days. So using the image of a vine was a very powerful image for for these people. In the psalm, God is portrayed as the owner who secured a vine, planted it, and cleared out space for its growth. Psalm 80 uses the image of the vine for God's redemptive history of of, of Israel from Egypt through the conquest in the land and the building up of the Davidic Empire. So that period of time in Israel's history. Verse 8 says, You brought a vine out of Egypt and drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the growth for it. It took deep root and filled the land. You see what it's describing here? Planting this little vine, clearing out the space, clearing out more space, letting it grow, nurturing it, caring for it so that it grows up and becomes this massive, massive vine. Its growth was far and wide. The mountains, the psalm says, the mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. This image covers the story of Israel from the Exodus to the Davidic Empire. God took Israel to be his precious vine and removed his people from Egypt. Once the ark was built, he led them forward into the promised land, and along the way he protected them and kept them alive. Leading them with the ark, God cleared the land, the promised land, Canaan, for his people and planted them in the land. God defended his people and blessed them, and they grew, and they were well-rooted in the land. God raised up for them King David, and God continued to be present with Israel with the ark, David was a faithful king, and God extended his empire north, south, west, and east. It spread north to the cedars of Lebanon. Lebanon was known for its cedars. That was north of Israel. It spread south to the mountain ranges of Mount Sinai. It spread east to the Mediterranean Sea, and it spread west all the way to the Euphrates River. But that all changed, and Israel was bewildered. Now, we don't know what happened. The psalm does not give us any clues to the setting. Maybe the psalm was composed during the disasters that happened to Israel in the 8th century before Christ. That's when the Assyrians came in and invaded the northern northern part of Israel. 
and the northern tribes, including Ephraim and Manasseh, who were mentioned in the psalm. Maybe the psalm was composed during the 7th century before Christ, when the kings were increasingly evil and the government was deteriorating and there was more and more injustice in the land. Or maybe the psalm was composed in the 6th century before Christ when the land was depopulated because of the exile and Israel was small and weak. Maybe there was much unfaithfulness at the time when the psalm was written. There is, at the end of the psalm, in verse 18, a vow. A vow is made. If God will restore Israel, then the people say, we will not turn back from you. They will not be unfaithful. Perhaps this implies the psalm was written when the people were unfaithful. We don't know. What we do know is that the psalm expresses Israel's bewilderment. Verse 12, why, O God, have you broken down your vineyard's walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? Israel was exposed to its enemies who took its fruit and ravaged it. Why would God do this to Israel when he took them out of Egypt, planted them in the land, and when he made them grow far and wide? Whatever the distress was, the psalm knows that God did it. Verses 5 and 6, you have fed your people with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You made us an object of contention for our neighbor. The concern of the psalm is really something other than sin and judgment. What's interesting about psalms of lament is that they usually have a confession of sin in them. This one does not. That's not the concern here about sin and judgment. Why would God grow Israel into something great and mighty and then let it be ruined? Why would God take his people, giving them enormous influence in the world, and then make them insignificant and powerless? The people's prayers didn't help, verse 4. They were mourning, verse 5. Their tears were flowing. They were humiliated, verse 6. Their enemies laughed at them. The psalm cries out, what are you doing, O God? God's people were bewildered. Even though they were bewildered, God's people still hoped in him. That's what comes out in the last part of the psalm before the final refrain. Verse 14 says, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock your right hand planted. Here is hope in God. God secured his people. He made them great in the land, and he can do it again. God is not weak and powerless, even though his people are. This is a prayer for restoration. The psalm prays that God will make his people strong again. It says, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself, verse 17. And when you hear that son of man, what do you think of? I know what you think of. You're like me. You immediately think of Jesus, right? Jesus, son of man, son of God. We Christians immediately connect the Son in these verses to Jesus Christ. However, in the context of the psalm, the Son is Israel, the people of God. In verse 15, the Son is the vine that God planted and that was burned with fire and cut down. In the context of the psalm, the Son of Man, whom God made strong, is Israel. Now later, the Jews began to interpret this psalm as a messianic psalm because it spoke of God's future deliverer. And so that begins to come out in later scribal interpretation of it. But for many Jews, the Messiah would be Israel once God restored it. That was part of the expectation for many of the Jews. There were different ideas about who this Messiah would be, but for some it was Israel. In fact, in in the prophet Isaiah, 
Israel is talked about as God's Messiah. That language is used. So is Cyrus, and so is an unnamed future Messiah. So it could, it could be interpreted in those different ways um, before Jesus came. God would restore and save Israel so that it would be great in the world once again. And after Jesus came, Christians began to interpret the Son at God's right hand as Jesus. And that's, that's good. That's good Christian interpretation. He's the Messiah. He's the one who will restore us. Psalm 80 is for the church in its bewilderment. God has given the church great influence for morality and faith in American society. In the past, the dominant belief in our society was that God created us male and female and gave us marriage for the good of society. Scripture testifies to this, and Jesus affirmed this during his ministry. The church has taught this understanding of marriage, and it shaped Western society. Here's part of the traditional statement of the gift of marriage used at Christian weddings. I have used this statement for all the weddings I've done, which is, I think, somewhere 50, 60 weddings, over three churches I've done this. You use this statement. And this is the beginning of it. God created us male and female, gave us marriage so that husband and wife may help and comfort each other, living faithfully together in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health throughout all their days. God gave us marriage for the full expression of the love between a man and a woman. In marriage, a woman and a man belong to each other and with affection and tenderness freely give themselves to each other. God gave us marriage for the well-being of human society, for the ordering of family life, and for the birth and nurture of children. You didn't know you were coming to a wedding ceremony today, did you? One of the things the statement is making clear is that there is a moral order for men and women joined together. Male and female together make human society fully human. And I want you to listen to this because this is a major change of thinking in our, in our society. Male and female together make human society fully human. Male and female, men and women, is humanity in its completeness. Males by themselves are incomplete. Females by themselves are incomplete. Humanity, And there are many ways that men and women can come together, such as working together, studying together, conversing together, thinking together. But marriage is the fundamental human union. Male and female, men and women, joined together in marriage is humanity in its essential oneness. This union is marriage of men and women as female and male, This union is good for society because it's fruitful. It produces children, and this makes society grow and flourish. A society that does not produce children will soon die out. We like to say that children are our future. And how do we have children? The future does not continue by men and men coming together or women and women coming together. Society has no future with men posing as women or women posing as men but by biological males and females coming together. It's also good for society for children to be raised in a home with a male father and a female mother. Children raised in this way are raised in the fullness of humanity. To be raised by two men or two women confuses what humanity is and what what human society is, and it makes it lopsided. Such a home has a severe wobble in it. 
Not every child can be raised in a home with both parents present. And in those cases, it is important for the child to have a female mother, have a female mother figure or a male father figure who is active in his or her life to give the child more of the fullness of humanity. My own father is an example of this. His parents divorced when he was relatively young in his late elementary years, and his grandfather functioned as his father figure. I heard lots of stories about his grandfather. I saw lots of pictures of his grandfather. I never, ever saw anything about his, true, his biological father. Perhaps you can be such a father figure or mother figure for some child. This is a Christian understanding of human society and marriage, and it was dominant in American society. Today, the Christian understanding of marriage is no longer mainstream, and I'm not going to go into all of that because it's become so pervasive that we're all very aware of the changes that are taking place. The signing of the so-called Respect for Marriage Act is the most recent obvious example. We are told that marriage is a simple proposition. Who do you love, and will you be loyal to the person you love? And it's no more complicated than that, but it's not as simple as that. There is a moral order for love and marriage. It's interesting that while Congress is working out the details of the Respect for Marriage Act, there was a disgusting case of a man who had several wives. Some of them were underage, and he was arrested for shameful acts that he did and for having an underage wife. There is still some recognition of moral order in the United States. Apparently, you can't love whoever you want, even if you're committed to them. American society still says it's wrong to love someone else's spouse, even if you have a loyal affair with him or her. And American society does not condone underage marriage. The effects of a positive Christian witness in American society are disappearing. There are some Christians who applaud the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act. Many of them believe same-sex attraction is contrary to God's will. However, allowing marriage for those who have such desires helps order their attraction, that attraction. I've used the example of the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act as an example in this sermon because it's such an affront to the historical teaching of the church on marriage, and it dismisses the testimony of Scripture. Yet even those Christians who are in favor of this new legislation will admit that Christian influence is not what it once was in this country. Psalm 80 raises two questions for us in our bewilderment during Advent this year. Has God given up on us? And will the church have wide influence in society again? And both of these questions are answered by Christmas, or should I say Christ's birth. Has God given up on us? Listen to our gospel lesson from Matthew again. Joseph was a man who was also bewildered. Not necessarily not really the same way we were, or maybe Israel was, but he was bewildered in his own right. Mary, his betrothed wife, was pregnant. And Joseph had no idea how that happened. The Lord came to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And that, that kind of cleared up the origin of her conception, but I'm not sure that totally cleaned out his, his bewilderment. That which was conceived in her was Jesus Christ, whom the Lord said will save his people from their sins. In the womb of Mary, God became man. Jesus Christ joins God and man together in a union that will never be broken. 
So Jesus' humanity was not destroyed when he died. God became man. Jesus Christ is the God-man. He went on to the cross and he died, and his humanity was not destroyed when he died. Jesus did not shed his humanity when he rose from the dead. Even now, his divinity contains his humanity. His divinity exceeds his humanity. They're not identical, but it, doesn't, it does keep it. His divinity keeps that bond with our humanity. And this means, among other things, that God will never go back on his purpose for us. You see, if he were to go give up on his purpose for us in Jesus Christ, then he would be giving up on himself. Why? Because he has united himself to us in Jesus Christ. God and his purpose for the church are joined together in Jesus Christ, and the unity of Christ's humanity and divinity cannot be pulled apart. It's bonded together in unity. Even though the followers of Christ lose their positive influence in society, this does not mean that God has given up on us because of Jesus Christ. The other question Psalm 80 raises for us in our bewilderment is, will the Christian church have a wide influence in society again? The psalm recalls the Davidic empire when the vine, that is Israel, covered the mountains with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river, verses 10 through 11. But then its walls were broken. Those who passed by plucked its fruit. The boar from the forest ravaged it and all that moved in the field field fed on it. So just like the Davidic empire had a broad influence, so the Christian church had a broad influence on the faith and morality of this society. Will it again? And the answer is, our influence has never stopped. Just like the celebration of Christmas occurs every year in the church, so our influence in society continues. I've kept qualifying the church's past influence in society as a positive influence. I kept saying that. It's like walking along with a stiff wind blowing behind you. You and the wind are moving in the same direction, and there's no real resistance to your walk. You're walking along with the wind. But let's say the wind shifts, and you're still walking the same direction, but now the wind is blowing hard in the opposite direction of your walk. You feel it pushing hard in your face, You're still walking, but the wind is against you. That might be a way to think about what's happened in our society. People of Christ, the wind of society has shifted, and it's blowing in your face. You still have an influence on society, but now we might call it a negative influence. It pushes against society. The church following Jesus Christ has not lost its influence on society. It's now a counter-influence. This is not the first time the church has had a counter-influence on society. It was that way in the early days of the church in in the Roman Empire. It It was that way when the missionaries of the church first went out into the world. And it was that way, it's that way today in our society under the spell of modernism. Needless to say, American society does not like the counter-influence of the church. It wants you to turn around and walk with it the opposite direction. And it's going to push hard for you to do that. But you still have an influence as you follow Jesus Christ, and it's a counter-influence. Jesus Christ is our hope as we make Christian witness in our society. Because he is the Son of God who became man in the womb of Mary, we are assured that God has not given up on us, no matter how strong society pushes against us. 
And because we are joined to him, who is the savior of the world, we will continue to influence the world for the good of society as we follow him. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and to be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace may always hope in him and bear faithful witness to your good ways for us and for our society. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you and the same spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. Please stand, let us confess our faith, which is also a counter-influence in our culture, in our society. Let us confess our faith together as we've heard God's word preached. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table, let us sing number 221, Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming.
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was arrested, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, with the cup after supper, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That proclamation is the church's influence in society. We receive Christ as he makes himself known in scripture, sermon, and sacrament. Having again heard the voice of Christ in scripture and sermon, let us now come to his table and receive his gifts. All who have been baptized, who have publicly professed their faith in Jesus Christ, and are communicant members of a Christian church, are welcome to come and share in this joyful feast of our Lord. You see, this meal is for Christ's people. It's not for just anyone in this world. It's for those who have come to Christ with faith and, and uh, seek to follow Him in the church. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for our new life and salvation in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. All glory and honor be yours always and everywhere, mighty Creator, ever living God. We give you thanks and praise your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ who for love of our fallen race humbled himself, was born of the Virgin Mary by the power of your Spirit, and lived as one of us. In this mystery of the Word made flesh, you have caused his light to shine in our hearts, to give knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. In him we see our God made visible, and so are caught up in the love of the God we cannot see except through Jesus Christ. And so with all the angels of heaven, we lift our voices to proclaim the glory of your name. And we joyfully say, holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. Accept our praises, Heavenly Father, through your Son, our Savior. And as we follow his example and obey his command, grant by the power of your Holy Spirit, with this bread and this cup, we may feed upon him in faith. As Jesus Christ told us to do this in remembrance of him, Therefore, Heavenly Father, we remember his offering of himself made once and for all upon the cross. We proclaim his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension, and we look for the coming of your kingdom. And with the spread in this cup, we make the memorial of Christ your Son, our Lord. Accept through him, our great high priest, this, our offering of thanks and praise. And as we eat and drink these holy gifts in the presence of your divine majesty, renew us by your spirit, inspire us with your love, and unite us in the body of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and with him and in him in the unity of the Holy Spirit, with all those who stand before you in heaven and earth, we worship you, Father Almighty, and give thanks with songs of everlasting praise. And with one voice, we offer our thanksgiving and say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. Take and eat this bread, and drink this cup, and remember Christ's body and blood given for you, and receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you chose the Blessed Virgin Mary to be the mother of the promised Savior. Fill us, your servants, with your grace, that in all things we may embrace your holy will, and with her rejoice in your salvation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn is number 233, To Us a Child of Hope is Born.
by his incarnation gathered into all things, earthly and heavenly, fill you with peace and goodwill and unite you with God. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. Hard to believe Christmas is just one week away. Amazing. Um, just one quick announcement is just a reminder of um, the service of lessons and carols will be here uh, at the church next Saturday, Christmas Eve. Um, and uh, that'll be at 6 o'clock. Are you still looking for readers? Yes. I have um, a few more slots for readers. And if you want to um, lead... The, the singing for some of the carols, there are a couple of carols still that, that could use that. Otherwise, Stephen, I think, will be here and he'll cover those. But if you want to jump in and do something, there is a place for you to do that. So see me after the service. Very good. Um, and then just a reminder that we will be having our um, CE class, Martin Luther's Christmas book. We'll be looking at the shepherds. And uh, I, I was working through that, and it's... I have to say, Martin Luther has a way of words. It was a very, very, very good, uh, good uh, lesson. So, hopefully, we'll be able to translate that for our CE class. So, uh, with that, we'll go ahead and dismiss. Thank you.